All right, welcome to this super awesome interview with Dr. Eric Helms on training volume. This interview is the final one from what I titled the volume month, which is just a series of interviews with the world's best experts on the same topic and getting different takes. So this one is with Eric Helms and he will give you his interpretation of the research as well as his real life experience on when and how it is appropriate to tinker with your training volume. You will get actionable and useful advice in this episode, as well as some interesting theoretical discussion. And if this sounds interesting to you, then definitely follow the Sustainable self Development podcast available on iTunes, Spotify, and on most podcasting platforms, because this show is full of gems like this one. And as well, if you'd like me to keep getting on people like Eric on a regular basis and listen to those interviews, then there is one awesome way in which you could help me making that happen. And that is dropping a five star rating on this podcast on iTunes. This will help the podcast rank higher, grow, and it will make it more attractive for guests as well in the future. So we can all keep enjoying interviews like the one coming up. So with all of that, let's get into it. How would you just summarize why is training volume important in, in general? Well, sure. I think the, the main reason training volume is important is because we live in a, you know, a universe with time. Um, I <laughs> like it's just a, a way of quantifying how much work you're doing. And, um, you know, I, w- Characterizing volume as the uh, primary driver of hypertrophy, I think I can I can get behind. But I think it's important to understand that it's not something like distinct from the actual mechanism of uh, progressive tension overload. Volume is just quantifying how much progressive tension overload you're supplying if all else is equal. Um, and like almost every other adaptation in the body, if you uh, create a specific adaptation for a specific outcome. Like if you're doing muscular endurance training to get better at, you know, high repetitions, or if you're doing, um, high, high volume running to get better at running for a marathon or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, uh, to a point, the more that you do of the said task will get you a, a greater adaptation. So the, the specific task itself, uh, is basically the directionality of the adaptation. And then the volume that you do of that specific task that you're training is essentially the, the volume dial on, on how loud that, that adaptation will be until you get to a point where uh, you're doing so much that it is overwhelming your recuperative capacities uh, and you start getting a negative response. And um, so, you know, volume as it relates to hypertrophy is just the total amount of work you do. Probably the, the easiest way to count that is just the number of hard sets in a, at least a moderate rep range or higher. So we could say something like the six to 20 rep range. And uh, there is a dose response relationship with volume or the number of sets you're doing if we're using that uh, quantification terminology uh, with the, t- the amount of hypertrophy you get. That's not a linear dose response, meaning that it's not a one-to-one of every set and you get one unit of muscle growth, but rather a diminishing returns response. Um, so at a certain point, you get no return on investment. And at a point after that, you actually get a negative return on your investment uh, as you're doing so much volume that you've actually overwhelmed your, your capacities to adapt maximally. So that you're adapting slower because you're doing so much. And eventually, you can actually see no progress because uh, you're just totally running yourself into the ground. So I think that's an important kind of way to look at volume uh, globally. Yeah. Um, so, so one thing that I want to clarify for those listening is that if if we look at just progression or getting 
or basically stressing the muscles more and more over time. And typically the way this happens in the real life or the, maybe the most practical way of making this happen is to just lifting heavier and heavier weights over time. So could we be saying that that is in a technical sense, the main driver of hypertrophy and then volume is basically just dosing it out. And maybe it's just a matter of um, almost like the, uh, modifying the rate at which this adaptation happens. So if you're dialing more of this stressor in, then maybe you're getting the adaptations a bit faster. And if you're dialing in a bit less, then you're just getting it a bit slower and over a longer time frame. Uh, I would say yes and no. Um, the actual act of adding weight to the bar is not necessarily uh, what is causing progressive tension overload. Uh, I would say your ability to add weight to the bar is more close to the identification that progressive overload has occurred. If you are getting stronger, it means you've done something successful in your previous training. But the actual act of adding a little bit of weight to the bar is not necessarily what's making you get bigger over time uh, because you could just do more reps with the same load and pushing yourself a little closer to failure. Uh, you could even drop the load and push it closer to failure uh, and still provide a uh, attention stimulus that's adequate to keep stimulating hypertrophy. Um, for logistical reasons, you are eventually going to have to increase, you know, the load on the bar uh, for hypertrophy purposes, just because, you know, if you think about if you're someone who's, who's listening and you've been lifting for a while, if you think about how much strength you gained in the first couple of years, you know, most of my lifts doubled over that period. So if I was to just add reps, I'd be doing an asinine amount of reps with, with very light weight um, that would eventually be suboptimal or at least annoying and, and fatiguing to deal with. So you eventually do need to add weight to the bar. Um, but that's certainly not the driver. Uh, the, the driver of hypertrophy is providing adequate stimulation to all the fibers, um, which can occur through adding more weight to the bar and probably will have to happen at a certain point. Uh, but the actual driver is an, enough effort uh, with the sets you do at, an, at a high enough volume. And the point which you can no longer add weight to the bar is indicative that the amount of volume you're currently doing is not enough for you to grow, assuming, you know, nutrition's in the right place, recovery's in the right place, sleep's in the right place, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I would say it's not actually just the act of adding weight to the bar. Uh, it's, it's providing a progressive tension stimulus, which can happen many ways. Um, but uh, eventually there, there may be a time uh, when you have to add total volume to make uh, the stimulus enough. Perfect. So, um, you know, this 10 set mark was kind of the, the general recommendation that, you know, you included a lot of professionals gave out as of recent times because that was the, the only real available data that we had on what's a good place to shoot for for someone who is reasonably trained. So now that we had a bit more recent research coming out on higher training volumes and perhaps we have a better idea as to what could be you know, something to shoot for for a trained guy. If some typical kind of intermediate guy who has been training for a couple of years is not super advanced, but is definitely reasonably trained already, like what what would be a good starting point where you would put them at this point based on the evidence we have? Oh, I would still be having them starting around uh, 10 sets per muscle group. I think that's a really good place to start. Um, right now, based on meta-analytic data, uh, we have basically enough research to say with confidence that a good starting place is hitting each muscle group at least twice per week, performing at least 10 sets per muscle group per week, uh, and then making sure that uh, the sets you perform fall somewhere in the six plus 
rep range, uh, and then that they're a decently high effort level. Uh, if you do those three things, you've kind of covered the big picture bases that are appropriate for a starting point. There are going to be people who need or would respond best to less volume or more volume than that, of course, and you'll find that out uh, through you know time and observation and paying attention. Um, but you know the most recent research, there's actually very little research on volumes over 10 sets. Um, I can think of maybe about eight studies, and a fair amount of them are included in that meta-analytic data that I was talking about. Some aren't, um, but the majority show an issue or at least a plateau of going over kind of the, the 10 to 20 set range. Um, the meta-analysis where we used that, where we got that 10 set figure, actually concluded in its 10 plus sets because uh, they just didn't, they simply didn't have enough data to meta-analyze uh, really high volumes over 10 sets. And this is found in Ralston uh, 2017 on, on strength. They kind of found like the, the 5 to 12 plus range optimizing strength as well as Schoenfeld also that was uh, fully published in 2017, 10 plus sets for hypertrophy. Now, if we kind of look at what studies that are available that have come out since then, uh, we can see a point where you start to get less consistent progress from going higher than that. Uh, so, for example, there was two studies done on uh, German volume training, you know, which is essentially a, a, a 10 set of 10 reps on certain uh, exercises training protocol that was popularized back in the day. And they uh, assessed a, a modified version of that compared to a five set uh, protocol. And if you count the number of sets per muscle group in the same way uh, that's done in the Schoenfeld meta-analysis, you see that the, the quote-unquote low-volume group is doing 9 to 18 sets per muscle group, while the high-volume group is doing 14 to 28 sets per muscle group. And in these two studies, one by, I'm going to mispronounce this, but I think it's Amarthalangam. It's I think that's an Indian last name. I, I'm not, I could be wrong, but I, I apologize if I'm mispronouncing that and you're the author listening, as well as Hackett. Both studied this and they found that um, the 14 to 28 set group either made no progress relative to baseline or actually regressed slightly. I believe in Hackett, there was a decrease in leg lean mass um, in the group doing that high of sets. And, uh, you know, the, the, the subjects in these studies weren't that well trained. They were benching like less than body weight uh, and they were required to have a minimum of one year of experience. Um, and you compare that to, to some other studies where high volumes were effective uh, and, and you see a very different outcome uh, because the, the, the in my, at least my hypothesis is that the, the higher volumes, when they do work, they seem to be in, in individuals who are pretty damn well trained. So, so at least in, in these German volume training studies, uh, 9 to 18 sets per muscle group was where the, the better gains were made. And you actually saw a negative outcome when doing you know, close to twice that amount. Um, in a recent study by Schoenfeld, they kind of had three groups. They had a six to nine set per muscle group, uh, group, uh, 18 to 27 sets per muscle group, and then a 30 to 45 sets per muscle group, uh, group. And in this study, there was a dose response, um, you know, the biggest differences were between um, the 6 to 9 and the 30 to 45 sets, but there were some trends towards the 30 to 45 sets per muscle group getting better hypertrophy than even the medium volume 18 to 27 sets per muscle group. So the question is, what's the difference? And if you look at the, uh, the group differences in Schoenfeld versus those German volume training studies, you see that they're benching about, you know, 20 kilos more on average. Uh, they weigh a little more. Um, and you know, they're, they're, they're pretty reasonably well-trained. I think about four years experience on average and about like a 200 pound bench press in the Schoenfeld study. So I think that might indicate that higher volumes are probably only appropriate if you have a fair number of years under your belt. 
Um, and the only other study where we've seen very high volumes be effective was in uh, Riddell, I'm not sure how to pronounce this either, uh, Riddelli and colleagues. Um, however, this was a study on uh, Navy men, so 48 military men who were confined to a ship. So they've got, you know, they're healthy, they're young, they have a background of calisthenics. Um, and, you know, they've got consistent sleep schedules, eating schedules, uh, and their life stress is going to be minimized because they're, you know, they're on a ship just on deployment. So in, in my opinion, I would say the data on high volume training indicates that if you can really dedicate your time to, to training and not much else and uh, your recovery is on point or if you're well trained, uh, it, it might go OK, at least in the short term. But we don't have studies any longer than, you know, eight weeks up to six months. Right. Uh, now. Speaking of this uh, recent Schoenfeld study, I, I just want to dig into this a little bit because I think it's very interesting for a couple of reasons. The the first thing that I, I would point out, and I'm super curious as to what you think of this, is that when I saw some of the details that were kind of emerging as I was reading through what they did, I was honestly kind of shocked that uh, this actually produced positive results. Like if I just think about doing five sets of squats with short rest periods, like I would think that by the fifth set – like you will be using some baby weights, like um, which which would is what we would kind of classify as like junk volume, like like doing work, but is not really effective because it's way below what you would be capable of. But not only do they that did that, but then they do like five sets of leg presses. Like I would even expect the first set of those to be kind of suboptimal, not very high quality work. But they did five sets and then five sets of leg extensions. Like if someone just asked me what I would predict would happen with someone if they did that, I would say they would atrophy, like no question. But not only that, but they actually made the best gains. So does it make you scratch your head a little bit? Because it certainly does it for me. So what do you think about this? Well, I certainly wouldn't think someone would atrophy from doing um, five sets followed by five sets followed by five sets of uh, squat, leg press, leg extension. I'd say there's um, really no evidence to support that conclusion. Um, and yeah, I, I, I 100% agree that, you know, resting, I think in this study, they rested 90 seconds uh, between sets. I think that would make you drop the load off. You'd have to, uh, you'd probably lose reps if you didn't drop the load. Um, so just for, for everyone listening, you would have 90 seconds of rest between sets and then two minutes rest between exercises. Um, that's definitely on the lower end of, of rest periods and for, for that kind of volume and, and big compound movements. I would probably have someone resting, you know, two minutes between sets as a minimum between sets of squats. And even then, you've got to be in pretty good condition. And I'm sure they were in pretty damn good condition after doing this, you know, three times a week for eight weeks. Uh, and they would acclimate to it. But certainly, I think you'd get better performance uh, doing, uh, you know, two to three minutes of rest between sets and exercises. Um, but... Yeah, I definitely don't think there's any evidence to suggest someone would atrophy from having to drop the load a little bit uh, between sets. Um, and uh, most of the evidence we have where someone's approaching uh, like 45 sets per, 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 per muscle group on like quads, for example, uh, is not that they would atrophy per se, but that they would plateau. Um, the German volume training study does show that there was actually a decline in performance in the groups doing uh, volumes approaching that amount. Uh, but then again, we have Redelier where they were doing uh, 15 to 45 sets per muscle group in the highest volume group, and they actually saw the highest hypertrophy. So, um, you know, there's a mixed group of data here. Um, uh, so, so yeah, most of the time we just see a plateau. Like there's a study by Ostrowski uh, where the, the, the hypertrophy basically was slightly higher, but more or less plateaued once you reached about 14 sets for triceps. Um, 
And then the highest group for quads was only 12 sets. So kind of showing again that right around past that 10 set mark is where things on average tend to plateau uh, when you're looking at the, uh, the, the research out there. So yeah, I, I think um, it's not an optimal setup and um, studies almost never are. And then that's not their intention to provide an optimal hypertrophy program or strength program or anything. It's more just to test a hypothesis. Um, so, you know, you have established protocols for rest periods, sets, reps, uh, days, and you match everything. And then you modify one variable. In this case, it was adding sets. And then you see what, what, what comes out of it. And it doesn't really surprise me uh, that uh, higher volumes. I mean, I, I, what I would have expected if I'd done the study and hypothesized what would, have out, what would have happened was that all three groups would have gotten bigger. But the moderate volume group probably would have gotten the biggest and then it would have plateaued or uh, gone down slightly. But I certainly would have predicted atrophy. I don't think that um, is supported by any prior research. Yeah, uh, to be to be fair, I so my hypothesized outcome would, wouldn't have been that from all that stress, their muscles just just collapse from all that stress and they just atrophy. I would have meant that over over eight weeks, they would have just performed so much sub-quality work chronically that over time, they simply would have been just under-stimulated effectively compared to what they could have stimulated themselves. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. So, so just to, just to make a point on that notch, so on, on that same point, well, if we think about it, if we compare three sets of leg press followed by three sets of leg, uh, sorry, three, three sets of squats followed by three sets of leg press followed by three sets of leg extensions to five, um, the big difference is that we would get, you know, the, the first set would be very high quality on both groups because they're not going into it fatigued on squats. And then each set would get successively lower quality, but you would still get more sets done in the five set group that are of higher quality, even if you get diminishing returns on each set. So, I mean, if it's, it's just adding two more on top of what was already done. Um, so I don't necessarily see why uh, you would have to have more of the total volume be of such a low quality uh, to get, you know, that subpar results in the five set group compared to the three set group in my mind. That's just how I see it personally. I, I struggled to see how um, the five set group would actually do a le- lower total amount of quality work than the three set group. It would just be that, um, you know, a greater proportion of their, their, their work would be lower quality, but because they're doing... Um, more total work in general and and nearly doubling the other group's amount that it's still more total high quality work even if the proportion and the efficiency is lower um that said i i I would still expect the middle group to grow the best just because i it seems to me uh that that you know 30 to 45 sets per muscle group is just so much uh, that recovery would be an issue and it would be uh more of an issue of, of not the quality of work in the training session but actually uh, recovering between training sessions and over overcoming the muscle damage to actually get to the growth process. Um, but, uh, you know, that's, that's not always what happens in studies, what you hypothesize. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, the reason why this, this was surprising for me is because there, there was always this talk about, you know, quality versus quantity and both are important. And I thought that, or I would have hypothesized that once you get acutely fatigued within a session beyond a certain point, additional work won't really provide extra stimulus unless you really have all the time in the world and you can rest a long time between sets and you can sufficiently recover at least to produce a high quality, uh, sufficiently high quality work in each additional set. But what this study seems to, to suggest then is that quantity counts so much that it can actually override the lack of quality 
Uh, and I, I wouldn't have uh, hypothesized that it would be such an extent. Maybe to a lesser extent, yes, but this is kind of an extreme setup. So just to clarify, that's my kind of um, surprise or where it's, where it's coming from. No, I totally agree with you, Abel. I mean, um, and I don't think this this changes the game. Like you, I think it, it just uh, speaks to where that bell curve is. And in this study, it was shifted to the right a lot more than I think the, the authors hypothesized. You know, having spoken to, to James and Brad uh, prior to when this study came out, um, you know, they, they were both surprised about the results as well. Um, you know, Brad has been talking about a U-shaped curve as a, and, and the dose response to hypertrophy for a long time. You can see that in his textbooks and in uh, the publications that I've done with him back in 2013, 2014, when we wrote our uh, recommendations for bodybuilding training. Um, he added a part where, uh, you know, there's probably a dose response curve to hypertrophy, uh, which has been illustrated in some other research. And I think it still would be illustrated in this group. It might just be that uh, it would have occurred even a higher volume, which is just uh, surprising. But I think it's also really important just to recognize that uh, no one study should dictate what you do in the gym. Um, and right now, you know, we have um, the two German volume studies. Uh, we have Ostrowski uh, and we have a number of other studies. Um, Baker that I can think of that was on strength, not hypertrophy, but nonetheless. Um, and let's see what there's another study I, I can think of where lower volume beat out higher volume. Uh, Gonzalez Badillo was on strength as well. Um, and uh, there might even be one other, which I, I'm just blanking on right now, but I can think of probably five or six studies where a lower volume group either made better gains or the same gains as a group that was driving its volume up into kind of uh, the, the over 20 set range or, or over 10 set range. So I think it would be a mistake to just read this study and go right into doing, you know, 30 sets per muscle group. Um, the study is also only eight weeks long. And it doesn't necessarily measure, it doesn't tell you in a year of training like this, who gets injured the most, or is this even sustainable, or what kind of aches and pains do you have, um, or, you know, anything like that. So, um, and I think the authors did a really good job of pointing out that uh, the strength and muscular endurance outcomes were the same between groups, at least uh, statistically, and that you can get robust you know, endurance and strength adaptations from just 13 minutes of training three times per week. Uh, so it, it totally depends on your goal. I think it's important to to recognize that hypertrophy is kind of the side effect of doing enough work at an adequate effort. Um, and uh, for people who are trying to get as strong as possible or just improve their fitness, you can do way less than this and get uh, robust adaptations. Right. Um, now, another thing that I would be curious about. So, Okay, like you said, one thing that we can include from a study like this is that at least for eight weeks, doing an extremely high volume of work can can work out for us. Um, now, how do you think this can be extrapolated into some some general practice, or or you know, if some someone wants to take something away for their general training setup, like what what is something that could be implemented in practice based on this study? Well, I not not a whole hell of a lot, but um, because you would need some, 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 a lot of confidence that you're not going to have the response that was seen in like these five or six other studies where you'd actually get, you know, no more growth or even less growth. Um, but uh, I would say that we know that for eight weeks uh, in some studies, uh, especially in studies that have the higher trained individuals, uh, the dose response of volume and hypertrophy is higher than we previously thought, uh, but not always. Um, the question then becomes, um, how is this useful to us? 
Well, for one, it can just tell us that we can look at volume differently and have maybe a different sliding scale on what's appropriate. Um, but I think more importantly are some other things that have been pointed out uh, by like James Krieger in his blog and in his presentation at a, a conference I was recently at in that uh, and if you look at the individual data points in this blog, you can see that there were uh, none, there was no non-responders in the high volume group. And this is interesting because in previous research on endurance training, we've seen that the, the no responder, uh, the non-responder phenomenon is actually fixed, quote unquote, <laughs> by just having them do more endurance training. So to get a VO2 max adaptation and improve your fitness, if you're a quote unquote non-responder to endurance training, it actually just means you have to do more to get a, uh, a more or less normal response to training, which is unfortunate. And, you know, not everyone wants to just go out and pound the pavement even more just to try to get uh, you know, some, some endurance adaptations, but it may be that the same thing is true, uh, at least for hypertrophy. Um, so it tells us that one option on the table is that if you are struggling and you're a quote unquote hard gainer, um, maybe doing more volume. However, where I would really caution someone is how they do that additional volume and in what order of possible solutions they put it. And I think it should be like last on the list. I think the first thing is you should assess, am I getting eight plus hours of sleep per night? Am I managing my life stress balance well? Um, am I ensuring that I'm in a small surplus and eating adequate amounts of protein and I'm not too high or too low in either carbs or fat? Um, and that I have really good technique on all of my lifts and that each one of my sets is taken to an adequate effort level. Uh, like if someone was to objectively observe me, they'd say that, you know, I'm not leaving more than three or four reps in the tank on a regular basis. Uh, likewise, that I'm not taking every single set to absolute like uh, gut-wrenching failure. Um, so to make sure that all those other things are in place before deciding to then turn up the volume dial, I think is really important. And then like I said, how you do it is also very important. And one thing that has been speculated along, speculated about for a long time is that if, if you want to try to really push the volume up as a uh, advanced lifter, it's probably not feasible uh, to do so for A, a long period of time, or B, to do it on every single muscle group at the same time. Uh, and since we know that you can make progress uh, on less, less sets, indeed, all three groups in this study made hypertrophy progress, uh, you can drop your volume on uh, most of your muscle groups down to somewhere closer to that 10 set mark uh, while then taking one or two muscle groups uh, up in volume, uh, but still proportionate to where you have been. So if you've been doing 15 sets, I wouldn't go to 30. I would probably, you know, drop your uh, all your muscle groups down to 10 that you weren't specializing on and then maybe take uh, two muscle groups to 20 sets per, per week for a couple mesocycles to see if you can progress on them. I think it's really important to make uh, increases in volume only when you are plateaued and everything else is in order and in some reasonable proportion to your, the current volume you're doing, not based on what some study did. You know, if you've been training with 12 sets per muscle group and you've been plateaued and all those other things I mentioned are in order, you wouldn't read the study and go, right, let me just, you know, multiply my volume by four and go to 48 sets per muscle group because that's close to the high volume group. You would try maybe doing 14 or 15 sets, making like a 20 or 30% increase at most, in my opinion. Right, you know, like, and, and this is very interesting what you just mentioned because um, while I personally don't know a lot of people who would say that they are non-responders, but I certainly know a lot of people who are just chronically kind of dissatisfied with their results. And even if they are making some progress, so let's say someone is doing 12 sets of work 
a week, like you just mentioned. And they are making some gains, but there is always the possibility that they could even be making better gains, right? So, like, kind of what, what would you say to these people who are tempted, not necessarily just by these studies, but just by the idea when they find out that volume is a key driver for hypertrophy? And it's always easy, right? Like volume and adding in more sets is always something that you can just just modify and it's fully under your control, unlike adding load to the bar, which is only going to happen as fast as it's going to happen. So like what are some things that they should keep in mind? So you mentioned recovery. Are they sleeping enough? Are they eating enough? Um, But what is something that should definitely make someone think twice before they add in a whole bunch of extra sets to make even better progress? Great question, Abel. And I think, you know, if, if you've been in the gym for a decent amount of time, we're talking, you know, more than a couple of years, um, and you are still making progress, you're probably doing a lot more right than you realize, at least as far as those big rocks. Um, and the grass is probably not that much greener anywhere. Um, you know, if, if you're, if you're a drug free lifter who's been in the game, uh, more than two years and you are progressing, uh, I would say hold tight unless like you, you, you write down how many sets per, per muscle group you're doing and it's significantly less than 10, you know, which I think is a decent starting point. Uh, cause that meta analysis was based largely on untrained or recreationally trained individuals and it's the average. So like if you're doing like less than eight sets per muscle group and you are feeling fine and you are progressing, but it does seem slow, I think there's nothing wrong with, you know, making a bump up to 10 sets and just seeing, seeing how you do, assuming all those other things are in order, like you and I just mentioned. But if you're already doing, you know, 10 sets or more, uh, and you're progressing and you've been in the gym a couple years, I would just caution you that from my years of coaching experience, the grass is almost certainly not greener. Uh, on the other side, uh, and you may end up just doing a lot of volume without actually seeing much much return on that investment. Um, and there, there's something to be said for for realizing that you're no longer a newbie. You're no longer even necessarily an early stage intermediate uh, if you've been progressing for the the entire time you've been training. Uh, and if you just think about it logically, you can't make those newbie gains anymore. I mean, if you could, like I said, I doubled my strength on uh, you know squat, bench, and deadlift in the first one to two years I trained. If I could do that every two years. I would be stronger than Ray Williams on my squat <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and benching similar numbers to, to, to that as well. It just, it's not possible. So, um, you have to understand that your rate of progress will slow the stronger you get and, and, and the bigger you get. And, uh, as you kind of reach that, that, that genetic ceiling, you're going to always be moving, you know, at a slightly slower pace to get closer to it. And if you are experienced and you're an experienced lifter, uh, and you're progressing at all, yeah, and you can track that and, and, and visually observe that, you know, objectively, then you probably shouldn't change things too much because you've got that recipe correct. Uh, it would be my advice to someone. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and just, um, just just hypothetically, I, like one thing that these high volume studies made me curious about, and I think this is, we, we can actually ignore the studies for a second and just, um, I think any given lifter uh, can probably progress on a range of volumes. Probably if they air way on the side of the lower lower volume end, then they will progress a little bit slower. But probably you can get into that territory when you're not really progressing any faster, but you're just getting a bit more niggles. So like how much, um, how much do you think that's, sliding up and down on that scale is going to make a difference in the in the long run so um let's say i can progress anywhere between 10 and 20 sets um is is it 
like how much faster of progress will I make if I'm trying to squeeze out the maximum amount of volume that I possibly can do as opposed to just picking something that is going to kind of smooth sail me all the way to the end, uh, if this question makes any sense. That's a great question, Abel. No, that's actually being able to quantify like what, how much faster are you going to be gaining? Um, and I'll actually won't put the studies aside quite yet because one cool thing about meta-analyses we have is they, they work around effect size statistics, which allows you to, to look at different percentage changes and calculate that. And um, if I recall correctly, and I'm, I'm close if I'm, I'm not getting the number perfectly, but I think I'm pretty close, is that the, in the Schoenfeld meta-analysis uh, on hypertrophy, the one to five set group uh, per week uh, or, or that, that category, I should say, in the meta-analysis was gaining uh, hypertrophy at about uh, half the rate of the, uh, of the group that is, or that, no, that's not right. So the 10 plus group, if I recall correctly, was gaining 50% more muscle mass per unit of time than the group doing one to five sets. So 50% better gains over time. Now, when we're talking about going above 10 sets, on average, you think it's going to be less than that. We're seeing diminishing returns. So um, let's say we're talking about a range of 10 to 20 sets, which I think is a very reasonable range to train in. You know, comparing, assuming that you actually are going to get a positive response from 20 versus 10 sets, which I think is probably unlikely just on average, but some people that might be the case, it's going to be a much smaller amount and certainly won't be twice. You know, you, you could double your volume for maybe a 10% increase in gains. And you know, twice the number of exposures to, to training, which is twice the number of exposures to potential injury. And like you said, potentially uh, many more niggles and, uh, and stress from that. So you have to ask yourself, am I putting myself in a tortoise versus the hare position where I might be making faster progress for the next couple months, uh, but I'm, you know, cruising for an injury that might put me out for a month as well. And that I would have just gotten passed up uh, by my myself in another dimension that where I was doing 10 sets. Um, you know, you can't know this, but you also have to look at this kind of like a gambler, like what do you stand to benefit from doing a very high, high volume program and what do you stand to lose and what makes the most sense? Like if you're currently making progress on 10 sets per muscle group and you go, you know what, let me just double that and go to 20 sets. What do you stand to gain? Objectively, probably no more than like a 10% increase in your rate of progress, which you won't even be able to really see. Uh, what you stand to lose, though, is a potential injury. So I do think people should err on the side of being conservative once they're in the range of what we think is reasonable. And like you said, you may just be, uh, you know, trading more time in the gym for being a little more uncomfortable in your hip flexor uh, or your IT band or your shoulder uh, without actually any additional gains in many cases. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, and, and, and it's the 10% uh, mark that you just mentioned. I mean, I think that's that's an even better way of putting it into perspective to people. I, earlier, like I was trying to illustrate it to someone and I, I was just for the sake of making it a little bit more kind of optimistic, I just used a 50% mark. So let's say you go from 10 sets to 20 sets and you will be making 50% faster gains. That would mean that you will put on X pounds of muscle in in 12 months as opposed to 18 months. And if you look at it that way, it's not that big of a gain, but 10%, I mean, that's even more, makes it even more trivial. So it's funny. Um, so I guess um, like one of my last questions to you is, um, and and I know, I, and I fully understand that you don't like to share these personal numbers. And I don't, I personally, I don't like to talk about these things either, but just to like give people some ideas, you someone, you're an, you're an advanced lifter and you have been 
methodical and meticulous about your training. You observe how your body responds to things and you're intimately familiar with the scientific, latest scientific um, literature. So like how much, if you look at these these numbers and these volume landmarks, as Mike Israel would call it, like how, how far did you have to ever climb up these ladders uh, for the sake of hypertrophy personally? Great question. And I'm actually very comfortable sharing this because I think we've done a really good job of providing all the caveats and discussing how, you know, the average response in the study is not how an individual should be, uh, you know, planning their own training. And and recently, since since uh, James uh, presented some of this data at the conference in Melbourne back a couple months ago, um, I was been, I've, I played with uh, basically some specialization cycles on my own where I was uh, doing what we talked about, you know, jumping up the volume uh, on one or two muscle groups at a time. I actually did a a two-week specialization on uh, quad and glutes and then hams and glutes and then, um, you know, uh, calves for the lower body while I was doing chest and back uh, or rather push and then pull and then arms for the upper body. So I had kind of this upper lower specialization cycle for a while and I was pushing my volume up into say the 20 to 25 sets per muscle group on the body part that I was specializing and keeping it closer to 10 on the muscle groups where I, where I wasn't trying to specialize on them. Um, and that was more just of a logistical kind of experiment because I don't really expect to see a huge amount of progress in, in, in six weeks. Um, but um, in looking at more global numbers that I've played with over time and when I've broken plateaus, uh, you know, I got to like a 315-ish bench uh, and it was stuck there for years and subsequently didn't have much upper body um, development change um, until I really started playing with higher frequency and higher volume with my upper body. Um, so I personally have pushed my sets on uh, chest and like my upper body in general up to like the 15 to 25 mark to, to see progress. Uh, and, you know, I've done closer to the 20 to 25 mark um, for, for my upper body for, for years now. And that what has been what I've needed to do to see more or less consistent progress um, for my lower body. I don't seem to need as much volume, which kind of ironically is the opposite of what some studies show. Um, but um, that's typically more close to that, uh, like 10 to 20 versus that 15 to 25 set range for my upper versus my lower body. Um, where I've needed to keep progressing. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's, that's, that's kind of where I've been. And so I find that is best done when I'm doing, you know, four to six days per week and focusing on upper, lower and full body days kind of intermingled together as a way to, to hit everything. Yeah, and just I mean, not to open up a whole other can of worms, but when you when you talk about these higher volume numbers, so fifteen to twenty five, like twenty five is a fair amount of volume. Like how, in and how many training days do you like to distribute that? Because there is also a fair amount of intelligent debate, or at least discussion over kind of the diminishing returns effect of volume within any given session. So like, what what's the most amount of work that you like to perform for any given muscle group within a single session? Great question. Yeah. Yeah. So when I was trying to push my bench press uh, and make some progress on that, and when I was successful, I was benching uh, every time I came in the gym and that was uh, five to six days per week. And I was doing three to four sets uh, per bench session. So um, so yeah, that was only three, three to four sets per, per for, for those muscle groups per, per day. And I wasn't doing any, um, at least pushing accessory work. I was doing, well, I should say any horizontal pushing accessory work. I was still doing overhead press 
once to twice per week and then uh, training my arms directly uh, you know once or twice a week as well but to kind of put those on, on a more minimalist approach just one overhead press session one tricep session and then benching you know five to six days and um, so that, that that limits the total volume and all those total those those target muscle groups a good bit and then in general if I'm on a more balanced uh, higher volume approach for a muscle group I'm probably not going to do any more than like six to nine sets for a target muscle group in a session. Um, and then if I need to get more, then I just got to do more sessions. So for example, if someone was going to specialize on training their back, uh, they might do like a row, a lat pull down, and then like a pullover or uh, like a high row, like a face pull or something like that. Three sets a piece at most in, a, in one session. And then if they want to get you know, into those higher volumes, they're just going to need to hit it three, three more times or something like that per week. Um, or, or sneak an, another exercise in on a leg day. I think that's a, that's a really useful way of doing it is just tack on additional volume on a day. That's not, uh, traditionally dedicated toward that muscle group. Awesome. Perfect. That's fair enough. Uh, well, Eric, I think you, I asked you all my questions. So, uh, thank you so much for taking the time and, um, yeah. So maybe just mention where people can find your work and where people can see what you're up to. Well, Abel, I always appreciate this, man. It's always good to talk to you. And uh, thank you for the opportunity to be on here. So just first want to say that. And uh, if anyone's interested in finding uh, my work, um, I analyze a lot of studies actually with my colleagues, Greg Knuckles and Dr. Mike Zerdos uh, at, at Mass, Monthly Applications in Strength Sport. Uh, and you can find that at strongerbyscience.com slash mass. Uh, and then if you want to read my books where I go into training and, and nutrition, we're actually updating them for the second edition by the end of the year. You can check us out at muscleandstrengthpyramids.com. Uh, and then for stuff related to natural bodybuilding and powerlifting, uh, you can check out 3dmusclejourney.com. And then to get a little kind of flavor on what my life's like and the stuff that I'm personally interested in, make sure to follow me on Instagram at, at helms3dmj. Awesome. Perfect. Uh, Eric, thank you so much for taking the time. It was an absolute pleasure. Two-way street, brother. All right. Well, that was our episode today with Dr. Eric Helms. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did and you don't mind doing me a favor, I would super, super appreciate it if you dropped a five-star rating on iTunes. I don't expect you to make any kind of long, elaborate comment. I know that that's kind of time-consuming. So just drop that five-star rating. That will help the podcast grow, rank higher on iTunes and on other podcasting platforms. And it will help me getting on people like Eric Helms in the future so we can all enjoy listening and, well, in my case, making it interviews like this. So if you don't mind doing me that favor, that would be super, super kind of you. And I would be super grateful for sure. But at any rate, I really hope that you enjoyed this interview. Also, if you're into YouTube, then you can find me there as well through the link that is linked in the show description. And yeah, I guess that's all I had to say for today. Definitely feel free to check out the previous episodes of the volume month as well. I interviewed Mike Isratel and Meadow Henselmans and Dr. James Steele on the same topic. So feel free to check those ones out as well. You will find them under the Sustainable Self-Development Podcast. But at any rate, I hope you enjoyed this and see you next time.